This podcast is sponsored by the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Find out more at the conclusion of today's conversation. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt. Mortification of Spin is a podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Welcome to Mortification of Spin. My name is Carl Truman. I teach at Grove City College in the beautiful area of Western Pennsylvania. And I'm here as always with my good friend and co-host, the Reverend Todd Pruitt, pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Harrisonburg, Virginia. Uh, Todd, how have things been going the last week? Things have been going fine. Now, I'm, gonna, I'm going to, to violate a, a personal policy of mine, um, but just for, for instructive purposes. I'm actually, I actually have COVID right now. Um, you have I mean, COVID? I have COVID. Um, wow. I, uh, Do you know which variants? Well, uh, no. Uh, all I, all oh, I know okay. is that I've, I've never had a cold this mild. Um, okay. now, I, and I get it. Listen, I, I'm, I don't want to be insensitive. I know that this has wreaked havoc on, on some, but yeah. for whatever reason, yeah, I was symptomatic for two days and yeah. and now you know I'm I cough maybe once every thirty minutes or so. Wow. Um, wow. But uh, yeah, I feel fine. So um, I th- I think what it is is that I'm t- I'm a Texan and I have this kind of inborn aggressive immune system that um, that that has driven uh, uh, the virus into into a cowering position somewhere in the right. corner of my right. body. So yeah. And- were you eating any of that stuff that just happened to sound like a legitimate medication, but that they used to clean fish tanks? Uh, <laughs> no, I didn't, I didn't take horse tranquilizers. I didn't take any of that stuff. It's, this is all me, baby. This is all me. Okay. Well, if I've had it, I, I have not been chemically or hormonally enhanced in any way whatsoever. And Bill Gates hasn't injected a tracking device into you or not, anything like that. Well, not that I'm aware of. So okay. I think we're still all good. And of course, I was meant to be speaking at the weekend at a conference with our good friend, Rod Dreher. Uh-huh. Rod got it. Uh-huh. He was hit pretty bad. Yeah, he does. Rod, he does Rod was suffering. Yeah. So, and, and he's been vaxxed a couple of times too. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, we're not here to talk about <laughs> the uh, trials and tribulations of Todd Pruitt. We're actually here to interview a guest, uh, a returning guest, as always. I say that is the triumph of hope over experience that this uh, uh, person's coming back. Uh, since he was on last time, he has been demoted, for which he is intensely grateful. Last time I introduced uh, this gentleman, he was provost or acting provost of Grove City College. Now he is uh, that rarest of creatures. He is a mere professor, but he is a professor of sociology. And I say he's that rarest of creatures because I think I'm right in saying that the annual conservative sociologist meeting uh, can take place in a teapot. Uh, there are very, very few conservative sociologists around. We happen to have one of the finest, my colleague and indeed my friend, David Ayres. David, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. What was it like while you were acting provost? What was it like 
to be Carl's boss for a while? And were you were you ever uh, you know tempted in any way to to intimidate him or or anything like that? <laughs> uh, no, I mean, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, and I'll say this with great sincerity: uh, the uh, having Carl come to Grove City College has been. Uh, Huge for I mean, it's been just a really, really wonderful experience. The seminary professor to undergraduate college professor is a big shift, you know, in a lot of different ways. And you kind of wonder how how's how's this person going to acclimate to this, you know, to basically teaching nothing but highly specialized graduate students preparing mostly for the ministry uh, into this environment where you have engineering majors taking a required <laughs> class and you know. Uh, you know, it's been actually, you know, I will say that with sincerity. It's been oh, wonderful. that's good. The listeners can't see me handing over the envelope full of used notes <laughs> yeah. at this point. But uh, oh, thanks. Just send a, just send a check. Yeah. Just send a check. I, think we should, I think we should close the program at that point. All that needs to be said <laughs> yeah. has been said. <laughs> now, seriously, we, uh, we had David on before to talk about his uh, book on Christian marriage. David is a specialist in the ethics and the practical impact of the ethics and the culture of the ethics of sex in the conservative Christian community. And he has a book that won't be out for a couple of months, but is going to be a must read, I think, for pastors, for elders, and for all of those who want to be informed about the current state of sexual behavior among professing evangelicals. It's coming out from Lexham Press. It's entitled, After the Revolution, Sex and the Single Evangelical. David, I remember when I became pastor of Cornerstone Church in Amberin, Pennsylvania, in about 2012, one of the other pastors, I can't remember who it was, but one of the pastors that I was chatting to at that time said to me, do not make the fatal mistake of assuming that anybody under the age of 30, however orthodox their beliefs, and however faithful their attendance at worship services, and however passionate their involvement in church activities, do not make the mistake that they agree with you on anything when it comes to matters of sex, sexuality, sexual behavior. Does your book bear that warning out? And that's nearly, we could now perhaps say under 40, because that was some years right. ago, of course. You know, it absolutely does. I mean, the statistics are stunning. And um, I did a, uh, uh, and if I can be excused for publishing an article will willingly in Christianity Today, <laughs> I, I had a piece that came out in March, which was, and the piece in March was not only based on data, but also included focus interviews with pastors, uh, evangelical pastors. And to call it disheartening would be to say the least. I mean, the bottom line is most evangelicals now live together before they get married, and most pastors are dealing with it. I mean, I literally had lunch with a pastor who told me that he no longer uh, had had uh, officiated at wedding services at his church because he'd end up confronting the, the cohabitation problem, uh -huh. and and it would it would lead to serious problems in his congregation. And rather than continue to do that battle over and over again, he simply stopped doing mm. weddings. Uh, one of the pastors that I interviewed for that article, uh, literally later, we were having lunch down in Pittsburgh, um, really fine person, was one of the people that has helped with the draft of my last book and with this book, um, literally uh, had to dismiss um, 
a worship leader in his church for refusing to stop living with a boyfriend, even when they offered low-cost housing and everything else. And it it caused tremendous rifts in the congregation. Um, and he, he gave me liberty to, to talk about that, to actually share that, you know, without getting into names. And literally, while we were having lunch, one, one of the elders called him on the phone and was angry. And he, he was losing elders. He was losing people in the church. And overall, they stuck with him. But there's absolutely nothing liberal about the theology of that church. Um, and um, so youth pastors are not shocked by what I have to say. Uh, pastors are not shocked by what I have to say. And college students are not shocked by what I have to say. And I'm shocked that anybody's shocked mm. by what I have to say. It's interesting because one of my questions for you was, were you surprised by anything? And what I'm hearing is, well, not really. No, I mean, you know, and I have to, I, I have to always really be careful in terms of getting too graphic because the data that I look at is from the CDC. Mm. You, I, 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 as much as I can, I use very, very large data sets put by by professionals. So you're talking about five, six thousand just females alone, maybe another four thousand males every two years. Uh, in a survey conducted by health professionals, so they get into some of the really nitty gritty details. Um, and at certain points in my book, I just had to stop and say, we're not going to we're not going to get the camera up this close. But when you look at some of what's going on and the degree to which it's going on in areas like and again, I don't want to get too graphic, but things like anal yeah. sex. Yeah, that shocks me because that's death on right. wheels. I mean, that's that's that is a that is a degrading, especially, you know, as, and, and we're talking about women allowing this mm -hmm. right. Teenage and young women, unmarried women with Christian men. Mm. And I'm like, A, you're playing Russian roulette with, with, with some of the most ugly, terrible health consequences I could possibly imagine. Sometimes you're literally thinking that it's some kind of form of birth control. You have no idea of what the risks are involved in that and how difficult it is to control the risks. And, um, I've had people tell me when they looked at some of this data that they literally ended up, uh, I had one pastor who told me he ended up crying mm. because you're going to cry. If you think about that, these are the people that I love. These are the people that I minister to. These are the people that I care. And this is what they're being allowed to do to themselves and what they're going to live with uh, for the rest of their lives. You know, hopefully, you know, God's grace intervenes. They experience real cleansing, real healing, um, and uh, real forgiveness, but but the fact is is that the damage is very real. Uh, maybe it's partly just being a dad with four daughters, but I actually get kind of angry when I think about what's happening to young women, particularly because I was taught to protect. Yeah, I was taught and raised to protect women. I was chatting some time ago, sometime in the last year, to a a woman who told me when I asked her what she did, she said she was. Uh, I think that the a pelvic physical therapist. I didn't even know that such a thing existed. And I got the impression that essentially this calling has developed because of the pelvic damage done to a lot of women by sexual activity that's, that's now going on. And she said that one of the most tragic things she faced was that young girls assumed that intercourse was just going to be very painful, period. Uh, that strikes me as a very, very disturbing develop. Now, I should qualify that. She didn't have an exclusively 
I don't know what her clientele was. It wasn't a Christian clientele. It was the world, if you like. But as we all know, the evangelical Christian world often isn't too far behind in being an exact replica of of the world. It's basically two or three steps behind. And we we see that in other things as well. For example, uh, one of the interesting news pieces that just broke on Twitter, at least I saw it on Twitter, was a new Gallup poll that showed that six out of 10 conservatives um, do not think it's very important for people to get married when they have children. I saw that. Yes. And then, and then one person rose to their defense and said, well, but six, so four out of 10 didn't think it was very important, but six out of 10 thought it was somewhat mm. important. Um, when did providing children with two married parents become even somewhat important yeah. and not even somewhat important to what, you know, you know, I, I uh, so we, we see that across the board. It's there's, there's been a general, general failure and this, kind of two steps behind the world phenomenon. I remember I used to joke in the 80s, I used to say, they give us MTV, we give them Christian MTV, right? right? Mm. There's always a cheap kind of mediocre Christian version of whatever the world is handing out at this time, at any given point in time. But this is a far more serious Mm. one um, because um, the the consequences, you know, are, are, Mm. are, are so devastating. But it also is such a basic form of disobedience. Um, in some ways, maybe one of the one of the main ways that the Romans in the Roman world, what you read over and over again, is that was one of the first things they noticed about Christians was was their fidelity to marriage, their sexual ethic, their care for children, the way that they treated women, and the way that they honored women in their midst. All those things stand out. You know, you see pagan writers, you know, marveling at this, yeah. right? And so the idea that if our culture goes down the toilet, we should kind of expect the Christian world to go down the toilet. That's that's not the way that it was, and and, and the Roman Empire was pretty well down the toilet. I mean, how do you how do you top Nero and Caligula? You know, um, and yet even even in a situation of persecution and deprivation, they 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 provided a counterexample to what was going on around them, which I'm sure got people to ask the questions that led them to approach these people and ask them what it was that made them different. In other words, a great opportunity for the gospel. So I, you know, I encounter this kind of stuff. I'm a pastor now. Interestingly, fortunately, um, you know, we're a conservative Presbyterian church and the students we attract, oftentimes, you know, you you know, you've got a lot of choices in our community, just like any other community. And if you come to our church, you know, you're coming in. So they know what they're going to get. We have very strict policies in terms of mar- marrying people who our pastors can marry, what they, you know, they have to have these pledges. And we ask them very in-depth questions before we even agree to any of this stuff. But w- one of the things I noticed when I, when I talk to some students is that um, those who are struggling with this will, will be genuinely curious at least they will seem genuinely curious about why these boundaries around sexual activity, you know, why is it important to hold to those? These are kids raised in Christian homes, evangelical, and they, they they know the prohibition. They just have no idea why it should be followed because it doesn't make sense to them. And, and I, and I wonder just how much of a lack of clear teaching 
on this for a whole generation of evangelicals has played into kind of what, what we're seeing. Well, yeah, I mean, there's that. And um, pastors are afraid to touch the mm-hmm. issue. Um, youth pastors oftentimes say, well, they don't want to get into talking about sex and so forth because um, they don't want to alienate people and turn them off to Christ. So what they do is they turn them off to Christ is not the Christ of the Bible. Um, they, they, they turn them on to essentially a false Christ. And that sounds extreme, isn't it? But, but if, you take, if you take the moral demands of the Christian faith out of the lips of Christ, you're not talking about the right Christ. You're talking about a fake Christ. And um, they're really quite open about that. I mean, I've talked to, I've worked some with John Perry, Reformed Youth Ministries. I've talked to Walt Mueller. I've had youth pastors uh, write me after I did a podcast with Walt. Um, there are many, many youth ministers, youth pastors, and, and pastors that are afraid to talk about this. But the other thing is, is that it, it only makes sense when you, have a, when you have the entire ground foundational theology is right. Um, the, the rules distinguished from creational understanding of marriage, a creational understanding of the purposes of marriage, uh, an understanding of who God is and who we are, of the, the infinite holiness and wisdom of God relative to our own wretched ignorance and sinfulness. If we don't understand that he's God and we're not, that we live in a world that he created, that we belong to him, and that we're to be vessels of his holiness. You know, I just was reading in Ephesians yesterday, he chose me from before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him, not to be holy and blameless before the world. In fact, to be holy and blameless before him, to be condemned right now before the world and the culture that we live in, it's, it's to basically be evil uh, and bigoted uh, to them. And, you know, you're fighting upstream if you try to inject biblical standards into a worldview and a theological system that is essentially moralistic therapeutic deism, which is nothing more than the Christian light version of expressive individualism and the therapeutic self that Carl's written about so eloquently. It's, it's, gener- it's generally just a version of that. So when God is my waiter, when he's my busboy, when he's my pal, uh, rather than the, the, the one to whom I bend my knee and live every moment by his grace, then, then it's very difficult to see, you know, these demands in their proper, in their proper perspective. Now, David, does your research give any indication of the role of parents in this? Now, obviously, the best of parents can have the worst of kids. We all know that parenting is not an exact science, and some kids just go off the rails despite having wonderful, loving, wise, thoughtful parents who've done everything right. But do you see any trends within parenting? I mean, on the one hand, we talk about youth pastors, but the responsibility ultimately is not first and foremost that of a youth pastor. It, it's that of the parents. It is. What, what do you see? Do you see any trends among parenting that's proving problematic. Clearly, a generation that's problematic is going to produce problematic parents at the end of the day, but hopefully we're not there yet. But are, are the things that parents are consistently failing to do at this point in time that is providing fertile soil for their kids to just not get it and to go off the rails on this point? In about 100 different ways, I would say yes. Mm. And um, 
I, I saw something recently that Vody Bochum said, a uh, Reformed Baptist pastor, who's more known for his stance against CRT. That's critical race theory, not me, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. I guess I remember. But he, uh, it was wonderful. He said, uh, people, uh, people are looking at these types of problems and um, they're blaming the church for what the parents are failing to do. Now, that's a complex thing because the church is also not doing as good of a job as it needs to do equipping, supporting uh, marriage and parenting, because of course the, the heart of good parenting is good marriage. I mean, the very, my very first obligation to my children is to be a good husband to my wife as the scripture, as the scripture expresses it. And, and then these other things flow out of that. But as a parent, first of all, if my kids are getting lousy preaching or they're not being taught on these issues, who picked the church? Who, who decided that they, they wanted that really cool? It's like people who send their kids to a bad school because their kid wants to be on the baseball team there. So they pull them out of a really good classical school that they can afford in order to make sure their kid has a chance to play baseball. And then they wonder why their son's having sex two years later uh, and, and is undereducated. I mean, who, who's establishing those priorities? But um, the... Um, the fact is that parents make a huge difference, and statistically, parenting makes a huge difference, and simply having committed married parents makes a big difference, but then everything else is connected to it as well. So, for example, the role of peer and media influences is very powerful on kids, but that's something that we basically manage. That's something that we help them, we teach them how to access that. So, ultimately, What's a good analogy? The uh, first mate gets drunk and drives the ocean liner into, uh, into a cliff. The captain is responsible. Now, the captain says, no, I'm not responsible. The first mate is responsible. And the answer is, at least it used to be, the nautical answer was, you're responsible because you are, by definition, responsible. Um, and until my children are emancipated, uh, particularly for most of them, until they get married, um, I am responsible. That's just a fact. Now, the, the kids are not machines with buttons you can push. And so, so much Christian parenting advice is very mechanistic, very legalistic, very much about pushing the right button with the guaranteed results. It's an art. It's not a, it's not a science or, or a form of engineering. Uh, nevertheless, um, it, it's the critical thing. On the other hand, the church, churches could do a lot more to support them and to teach them, and to train them, and to provide the environment. Because it's also true that many parents find themselves in communities where there's not a single church that they can realistically connect with that's going to feed them and give them the things that they need. So it's it's a complex, I guess I what I'd say, it's a complex reality. So, you know, I'm a pastor, um, deal with this issue a lot, talk to lots of parents, engage with lots of people on these issues. And I can tell you that Pastors need to be creative and thinking about as many ways as they can to get as many inputs into parents and kids as possible for the truth. And so, for instance, um, this Friday evening, we're having a, a banquet for parents that's hosted. I mean, we put it together. We, we have a, a youth pastor who's a true pastor, seminary trained, excellent teacher. Um, and our children's ministry director have designed this event to talk about these very types of things to our parents. Fantastic sign up. 
they're coming. They know what they're going to hear about. They want to hear about it. They know there's a problem. And so they're giving up a Friday evening to come and hear these things. David, you mentioned earlier something that I want to underscore. When you talked about how we've got to teach our people a strong creational theology and a doctrine of God, if they're going to understand and appreciate the boundaries that scripture places around the body and around sexuality, that has to be done more and more by pastors because what we're hearing is from young people who the prohibition doesn't make any sense to them whatsoever. Now, it would be nice if we could just say, but yes, that's the prohibition. Now move along. But the Bible actually gives us more than the prohibition. As you pointed out, the Bible gives us a doctrine of God, which helps us to understand and love those boundaries that Scripture has given to us. And so pastors need to be preaching doctrine of God, doctrine of creation, creator-creature distinction, doctrine of the body, so that we get that joyful, God-honoring, life-affirming biblical rationale behind the boundaries that Scripture has set. Um, and now more than ever, that, that's needed. Well, and, and see, that's where understanding and being honest about consequences does help. And I, I have a large section of the book where I basically just deal mm -hmm. with consequences. And so, for example, oh, just something as simple as the condom is one of the biggest, most lied about distorted realities in the world, right? Anybody that's regularly having sex, even if they're using a condom almost perfectly, and it's almost really impossible to do that and be a human being, right? Is, is A, going to eventually impregnate or be impregnated, and B, is, is before they impregnate and be impregnated, they're going to be transmitting, shall we say, bodily fluids capable of transmitting sexual diseases, because that's going to happen before the person gets pregnant. And yet people are lied to about that. Uh, the consequences of cohabitation, the consequences upon marriage of sexual promiscuity, the inability to erase those memories, um, the constant feeling of being compared to all the others. Uh, even once you've entered marriage and repented, and yet you're still human and you deal with those ghosts uh, in your head. Now, what we've sometimes done is use consequences to try to scare people into doing the right thing. And I don't really think that that works. But the consequences are, I think, part of a larger apologetic for an understanding that there's this whole tapestry of ration, of reasons for God's order, uh, and, and mainly it's to connect people to covenant lifelong marriage and to have children raised within that protective set of boundaries, right? Um, and that's where sometimes Protestants have been afraid to talk about the centrality of procreation uh, yeah. to, to the whole ration, rationale of, of, of God's design for marriage. But nevertheless, um, these other things, instead of, look, I want to scare you into, into being a good boy or girl by pointing out all the terrible things that, are, that could happen to you, it is an apologetic for God's design. And that's where, and I know we don't like to use these words, but that's where we have to get back into a right understanding of natural law. Yes. Because you are sinning against nature. And nature does have a way of taking vengeance on those who sin against it. Uh, we understand that that nature is a created order sustained by God and that it's fallen and that he's made provision for us in a fallen world to not perfectly, but to substantially protect us 
from from certain aspects of that fallenness. You know, if if you don't pre- if you if you do the things that I'm telling you to do, these diseases will not come upon you. Right in the Old Testament, I, I got into a conversation with my son-in-law who teaches at a classical Christian school, and I said, every time I bring up natural law around my Calvinist friends, they blanch, they they make the sign of the cross, they sprinkle holy water on me, they get worried. Until um, you're going Catholic, <laughs> right? Uh, and I, I said, but I don't know any way around it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And he said, I said, do you guys talk about natural law? I said, yeah, but we don't use the word natural law because people react against it. And I thought about, I remember hearing Carl say something almost identical to that. I said, well, what do you talk about? He said, we talk about general revelation. We talk about consequences. We talk about living in harmony uh, with the world as God created it. We just avoid the word natural law. <laughs> and I, I found out that that actually kind of works, but not only we help them to understand the consequences for their own sake, but we the consequences then are part of an apologetic for God's for God's order. Then I think I, I think it, it's really helpful, and I think more pastors need to be able to sit down and have honest talks with people about the consequences. Yes. I think they need to know that cohabitation is undermining their chances of successful marriage. I think they need to understand that their chances of having a successful marriage drop dramatically with each new sexual partner that they have. I think they need to understand that microevolution is delivering us more and more deadly and, and more and more intractable diseases to which they are putting themselves at risk and for which there is no perfect protection out there. So I think there's ways to talk about that without getting into the scared straight approach. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, I just recently taught a eight week Sunday school class um, on this very issue. 145 adults came um, every Sunday morning to, and one of the lessons was on natural law on basically Romans one and two and what even unbelievers can't not know. And it was, it was very helpful for that. They, and we talked about, I did a little section there on these kinds of consequences and how we have to talk about it. Because if we love our neighbor, we don't want them doing things that are going to destroy their bodies, literally destroy their bodies, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I, I want to, again, pastors hear this, um, youth ministers hear this, college ministers hear this, and uh, begin thinking creatively about how you can get as many inputs on this information as possible to your people. Um, David, you know, this conversation is one that has to be had. It's going to have to be had again and again. There is no issue, I don't think, uh, than the the biblical sexual boundaries that has become a a more common launching pad for young people out of the Christian faith. Rebellion against God's design for sexuality, whether it's homosexuality, transgenderism, whatever, has become the most frequent rationale for our young people. To, to depart from the faith. And so the church has to redouble its efforts and begin to teach and to teach well on this subject. Um, we're going to, we're looking forward um, to the, uh, the release of David Ayer's new book um, on this very s- subject and the years of research he has put into it. It's already listed on Amazon for pre-order. I would encourage you to go ahead and make your pre-order, get that, if you're a parent, if you're someone headed towards marriage, if you're a preacher, if you're a youth pastor, get the book. It's going to be helpful to you, I know. 
And if you'll do this, if you'll go to our website, mortificationofspin.org, you can register to win a copy of David Ayer's excellent book on marriage called Christian Marriage. It is one of the best things I've read on marriage. It was on top of my recommended reading list for the Sunday school class I just mentioned. Um, it is a thorough explanation of the full teaching of what scripture says about marriage and touches on some of these very, very topics we've mentioned today. So go to our website, uh, register to win a copy of that outstanding book. And while you're there, uh, you may even want to make a donation to the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. David, thanks for being on with us once again. These are sober discussions, but discussions that have to be made. We're glad that you're doing the work you're doing. We're glad you're teaching university students. May your tribe increase. And uh, continue to say nice things about Carl, because not everybody does. <laughs> we appreciate that. <laughs> well, thanks so much for joining us, everyone. We look forward to being with you next time uh, on Mortification of Spin. Love and marriage, love and marriage Go together like a horse and carriage This I tell you, brother You can't have one without the other Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. For more on topics like this, visit mortificationofspin.org, where you can find other articles by Carl and Todd, browse the archive of past episodes, and make a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. And David, your title, just Professor of Sociology? Uh, now I'm just Professor of Sociology. Okay. May God be blessed. I was going to say, no longer provost. <laughs> no longer provost. He can no longer threaten me. Not not officially, mm. anyway. You can still threaten him. <laughs> David's, uh, I'm sure David's useful. And he's heavily armed as well. So. <laughs> yeah. That's true, actually. Yeah. I, I am the only unarmed man within about a 50-mile radius. <laughs> David, I'll give you 50 bucks to take Carl out to a shooting range. <laughs> I, I would love to do that. And then film it. Film it. Mm -hmm. I got a colleague who's taking me to a shooting range to fire a wall of the PPK. I've always wanted to fire the Bond gun. James so. Bond, yes. <laughs>